Welcome to the Revision Wizards podcast. I'm Miss Catherine M.H., and with me today is V.E. Griffith. This is episode nine, and today we're talking to Don Elliott. We'll be talking about world building and revisions. I'm looking forward to everybody here in this episode. Uh, don't forget that we have a number of benefits for uh, our patrons. We offer a special podcast feed with extra content and personal updates. Um, early access to scene analysis slots uh, if you want to participate in an episode. Um, the opportunity to ask questions for Ask the Editor updates, uh, professional editing, and uh, more. You can find out everything you need to know at patreon.com slash revisionwizards. And on with the show. Welcome to the Revision Wizards podcast. I'm Miss Catherine M.H. and with me is V.E. Griffith. And today we're interviewing Don Elliott. How's it doing? Hey, glad to be here. All right. Will you give us your pronouns, please? We like to try to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Yes, he, him. All righties. So, how are you? Doing good. It's 99 degrees here. We finally had summer show up. No, <laughs> not cool. All right. Exactly. So why don't we jump not in? cool. That's the whole problem. <laughs> is it's literally not cool, but we didn't have summer show up until like, I think a week ago. And so I feel like I can't complain about it. I really want to, but I feel like I can't. Understandable. Well, then why don't we jump on in and why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? What's it called? All right. So uh, The Broken Horn um, is about an really should have practiced saying the whole pitch thing right beforehand. I feel like everyone says this right before on a podcast, but here I am. Uh, so there's, there's some people have said that it is Mad Max Fury Road meets Dune with swords. There's a lot to that. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it does kind of jive with me a little bit. Uh, there's a character, his name is Jody. He is a uh, very old 220 year old man, uh, a Gaddock, if you will, who is um, kind of a recovering alcoholic war veteran. And he lives in a town where he's, you know, sort of recovered and found a new sense of community. And uh, we'll call it an ancient uh, force comes uh, and threatens the town and he has to sort of overcome his inner demons and lead them out into the desert to uh, find a new home. Meanwhile, there's a gal named Roan who's a sand runner. She's kind of like a cowboy in the desert who has to take a, who has got a bounty on her head. And so she has to take on a job with this mysterious girl who doesn't speak. And she has to transport her from one place to the other. And she has to cross the desert too. Their paths will collide, and uh, shenanigans ensue. Gritty, kind of painful, dark shenanigans. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so where did you think that the seed of this story started? Like, why was it this story that you decided to write? Well, <laughs> that's kind of funny because... Uh, it's not a typical first novel origin story, I don't think, because I've, you know, I studied for years and really prepared for when I was going to write my first novel. And one of the things that uh, 
I had heard over and over from authors was that your first novel is basically going to be shit. And it's like, just get it out and do it. And I was like, well, mine's not going to be that. But but you've got to like deliver at some point. So I thought, well, if, if I really want to, if I really believe that art is, or the, the writing is both art and craft, and if I really want to be great at the craft side, and hopefully I'm also great at the art side, but if I really want to be great at the craft side, this part that I can control, then, uh, and I want to write a lot of stories, then I should be able to create a story without this initial kernel of inspiration. I should be able to say, I want to create a story that exists in a certain world or whatever, and let me figure my way through it. So this was my thought of like, the first book is, you know, going to be the rough one anyway. So why not figure out if I can do that? And so I just, you know, spent time driving, hiking, backpacking, being out in nature and stuff, just mulling over ideas, thinking of characters, thinking of worlds, thinking of, you know, scenes, stuff like that. And uh, finally came across this character, Roan, who is uh, one of the protagonists in the book, The Sandrunner. Um, and she just really jumped out of the page at me or out of my brain at me. I'm not sure how that works, but, uh, just sort of visually and her whole persona and character. And she wasn't like anything I'd read in fantasy before. Um, and so I thought, okay, there's something I can do with her. And so I just started exploring where she could go and, uh, seeing where it went from there. And the, the first draft that I wrote, which was probably a 60,000 word draft, um, is nothing to do with what this book is about. But I mean, I guess maybe there's like, you know, things about the world that are the same, but otherwise there's nothing to do with it. So this book was very much like finding my inspiration sort of by brute force as I worked my way through the story. That makes any sense. It does. That's cool. So now I've read a bit of your work and honestly, your world building is, oh, I love it. What is your world building process like? Because I mean, it's, it's on point. You can smell the desert. You can see the desert. You can feel the desert. Like you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I know you appreciate world building. So that means a lot. Um, it definitely starts with nature. So I live in the Pacific Northwest. We're in nature all the time. Um, there's, you know, a desert, um, an hour, you know, two hours from here, hour and a half. There's a rainforest two hours from here. There's the ocean, the mountains, volcanoes, everything's here. So we're always out there. And for me, it was always, uh, you know, and, and we were poor growing up. And so what you had for vacations was road trips. That's all you could do, road trips and camping. Um, I was like, in my teens when I stayed at my first hotel. So we were in nature all the time and I would see, you know, a very large tree or an area with a whole bunch of abnormally, uh, abnormal amounts of moss, or, you know, giant mushrooms, or, you know, a cliff that's just dramatic and think, what if, uh, what if that was even bigger or even more extreme and a civilization had to live there or creatures had to evolve there? What would they look like? And I would just sort of explore that. And then in exploring that, it made me engage with nature even more. I cared more about rock formations. I cared more about the smell of the moss and all these things, the sound of the waterfalls. And so then you start going, okay, well, that naturally leads itself to character because now you're talking about, uh, you know, an entity's experience of 
that world that I'm visualizing. And so that started for me. And so stories naturally start to fall into that when you're imagining a civilization in this place. So everything's covered in moss, everything's very quiet. Um, you know, how does this affect things? Would, is this kind of moss, does it generate, is it like a peat moss where you can pull a bunch of iron from it? Does that affect their metalworking? And, and then when you start developing that stuff, you start realizing like, okay, well, in this world, so for example, the desert where water's gotta be, you know, obviously needs to be central point of currency if that's the main necessity in there. So uh, if, um, if water's that important, then we wouldn't spend things, uh, like paint would be really expensive because you're using water for paint. Meanwhile, chalk art would be a very different thing. So now I've got an artist who's a chalk artist versus a painter. And that already is a different connection. And now his hands get talk chalky, right? Instead of painty. Uh, and chalk art behaves differently in wind. And there is a rainstorm that comes every hundred years or so. And what does that do to chalk art? Chalk art's a little more temporary than paint. And all of a sudden stories and characters start coming out of it. So I would say my first thing is just like the physical setting location itself and experiencing that with all my senses and, and, and living in that, and then it, everything else just sort of comes from there as an exploration. That's awesome. How do you how, think how this... Did, oh, go ahead. How did you keep track of all of this stuff? I One of my problems with world building is that I can get into um, what I call Stephen Pressfield's resistance, you know, from the War of Art, where I spend more time world building to the nth degree instead of actually sitting down and putting words on the page how, how did you overcome that or or keep track of your world or and not go into too yeah. much detail i i'm just going to riff here because i don't know the exact answer to that <laughs> so i'm going to riff a little bit uh i think that part of it um is i don't care like Every little thing, I can go out into my yard right now and I can get really up close to some bark or something else and I can sit there and start to imagine what could happen in that spot. So like, I'm not precious about these ideas. Um, so like, I can toss this idea that it's like, oh God, no one's ever thought of that before. Like, well, yeah, other people have and you can do that again in the future. I'm gonna toss it out. Like, I don't, I don't care about it that way. I just enjoy the moment of indulging in that creativity. Um, and then when I'm sitting down to write, then it's what is, so there were certain aspects of the desert that appealed to me for the story, the starkness and the grittiness that I wanted to write and the way the world expands beyond the desert after this, I needed this really harsh, uh, beginning to happen. And so, um, I will camp in the desert. I will do you know, research the desert and all these things that come up with all these ideas, but I'm not committed to any one of those ideas. All I'm committed to is there's something going on in the desert and I've got this gal named Rome and I know what Rome's needs are or what she's trying to do. And so what I'm going to do now is sit down and start to write Rome's story and the parts of the world that matter that had all my ideas came from will, will find their way in or they won't. And I'm fine with them not because I'm not precious about them. So one quick example is the uh, uh, 
when I was real young, Desert Valley cracks and it's got these kind of deep cracks in the mud and they're deeper than you would normally see in the muddy areas, uh, you know, where you see mud dry quickly. Uh, they're pretty extreme in Death Valley. And so I thought, well, what if that's way extreme and you've got all these canyons and stuff in there? Uh, Brandon Sanderson later basically did that same thing. I was like, damn it. But <laughs> this was like 20 years ago. But uh, anyway, so so that's where this idea, and I've had that idea for a long, long time. And then as I'm writing and I came to this point where they need to cross, for a variety of things need to happen. And I was a little bit enamored by the Bolivian salt flats and salt flats in general. And so then I was like, oh, well, this is perfect. I can combine the two. So now I can have salt flats with giant fissures in them, with monsters inside the fissures. And the fissures are broken up like Death Valley is. And now all of a sudden I have this thing. And that idea 20, 25 years ago, and Bolivian salt flats was a more recent obsession. And I decided to pull them two together but it was all driven by the actual story. It's kind of like I want to saturate myself by all the story stuff and facts and then not care about them or not story stuff, world building of facts and then not care about them. And then I'll just pull them in when, when they feel right. How does that affect so that's your... me riffing on it? <laughs> How does that affect your revision process? So like when you're going through editing, do you find that you actually have to correct a lot because you just were like, whatever, I'll throw it in and, what happens happens or did it somehow seem to sync up because you knew it in your head so well? Yeah. So it, I bounced back and forth between research and the, um, so for example, if, if we're sticking with the salt flats thing and the, and the fissures in there, um, I have the whole idea and I have the idea of the monster and things like that. Um, and then now I'm describing her walking out onto the salt flat. Um, and I haven't actually walked out onto a salt flat before. I don't know exactly how it feels. So now I need to research and, and that kind of stuff. And it turned out it was a little less intense than I thought it was going to be. Um, and so I had to really simmer back. And now that affected they didn't really need as much water. They didn't really need to travel as far and as fast as they were going. They didn't actually need to do X, Y, and Z. So then that uh, affected the story. But I did the research when it was necessary for the story. I didn't. Um, it's it's like the there's there's re, there's like high level research initially. So the twenty thousand foot view. Where I'm like, well, let's look at where the salt flats are. Let's pull up Google Earth and let's look at all the images and let's read some accounts of it and stuff. Cool, I got an idea. Now I'm going to start writing the story and see where it goes. And then I'm writing this and oh, and the reflection of the sun and all this and all this jazz. Okay, I've got that now. Now let's fact check it. Now let's research it even deeper. Now that I know what I'm trying to do with this data, now let's research it deeper and goes uh, that stuff wasn't right. And, oh, I stumbled on something now that I can really work that thing. And I go back to the story and then edit it from there. Um, and maybe do that process a couple of times if it, if it happens, but they really kind of research and form story and the story informs deeper research and informs more nuanced story. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting I'm trying to think way. if there's, yeah, I was trying to think if there was a time where I really, I, I can't think of something where I had to do a major rewrite because of a 
fact problem. And I think it is because of the whittling it down between the story. I'm not doing like one big chunk of research and then everything needs to line up to it. And then I realize something went wrong and I'm like, oh, shit. And now I've got to go back. It's more like there's research I need to move forward a step. I move forward a step. Now I go back, check the research. Now I can move forward another step and whittle my way down. That's, I mean, maybe that'll help with you, VE. Like not doing all the research right up front, just deciding and going through. <laughs> yeah, I need to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you use, do you use stuff like, um, uh, note cards or, or some kind of note taking something to keep track of all of that stuff? Or do you put it into Scrivener? Do you use Scrivener? I don't even know. Um, yeah. How, you know, how do you yeah, keep track Scrivener of all of that? I, I definitely use Scrivener for drafting and character work. Um, I use notion for all the world building. Mm -hmm. Um, so I built notion with its databases integrated and all the, all these things, like I've built it out, templatized so I can, as I'm writing, or in particular, as I'm editing, and I realize that I reference this name, I might check in my, uh, or, you know, this, uh, a game. So rock and bone is a game. Well, I come and I'm going to write about a game again. I don't want to create a new game. So let me pull up my encyclopedia in Notion and see and filter it by games in this particular country, Namkadur. And, oh, I already said Rock and Bone. Let's pull that game in here. You know, I have to remember it. And then as I'm writing, if I'm in a flow state, then I'm like, screw it. I'm not adding anything to Notion. I'm just in a flow. I'm going to go. But if I'm in a normal writing state and I'm like, I need a game, and I need it to be a new game. I come up with a name. I take a quick pause. I drop it into Notion. All I do is put the name in there. I classify it as a game in the country Nankadur, and then I just keep going back. Later, I'll come in and modify it. So Notion gets everything out of my head really nice and quickly. That's cool. Do you use any templates? Do you make them yourself? How do you go about it? <laughs> I Yeah, I made the templates myself, but... I definitely made it all. I, I started by making templates and then started filling out the information. I'm really systems thinking. So uh, I wanted to like, get the structure in there first and then went from there. So how has your editing process for this book been? Because you've, you've talked a bit to me about it, but I don't know if you've talked to VE at all about <laughs> your editing process. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about it. Well, it's been, uh, it's fun for me to compare the editing process of this book with the, with the second book in the series, because th the, this book was, um, written during, you know, a five year period of really studying the craft. And so it was written while I was learning the craft at a, you know, at a, from a really beginner based, you know, level to whatever level I'm at now. And so that book took four to five years to get to uh, to get to a point where it was ready for a line editor. Um, book two took about nine months to do the same thing. Um, and so I learned that I think what I learned, I, I almost would say if out of all the things I learned during that first chunk, the biggest area of growth was the editing side. And um, I had a real strong foundation in story grid originally. So that kind of opened my eyes to a pretty deep level of story structure. Um, 
it uh, and that that formed a good foundation. It, it reached a certain plateau for me, and then I needed to go on to different forms and you know join Jay Thorne's group and. Uh, the three C's was a really nice uh, evolution from that. Um, but listening to a lot of podcasts, reading about other authors and their processes, uh, I was pretty influenced by Rachel Heron's uh, approach to revision, um, especially with her note cards and sticky notes. And I've got a wall of yarn and stuff up there. So I've tried so many different things. And I would say that what it came down to the process that seems to work the, the best for me was um, I'm an I'm a uh, not really an under or an over writer. I tend to kind of hit right where I think I'm going to hit, but I'm a slow writer. But when I hit the first draft, it's uh, or the rough draft, it's it's pretty well baked. Uh, from there, I do an analysis with the spreadsheet, and that's a story grid foundation spreadsheet, but it's evolved a lot since then. Uh, I factored in uh, three story method into the spreadsheet. I've modified it to factor in three story method, and it's this. I think it's beautiful. A lot of writers would be like, oh my God, what's wrong with you? It's this giant spreadsheet, but. What I love about it is the art side of my brain wants to discover thing, wants to do discovery where I can, wants to just explore and see what happens. And then the craft side or the science side of my brain wants to then analyze it and say, okay, well, what's happening here? Because I just walked through the forest. I don't know what the landscape, I don't know, you know, what the country looks like or anything because I'm in the forest. So the spreadsheet is this tedious, grueling process. It takes me probably, uh, 40 to 60 hours to get done. Um, but by the end of it, I've analyzed the entire story at a really deep level in all kinds of dimensions. Um, and I've created some kind of object, like I've, uh, I have a little bit more objective view of it, a little more of a colder outside view of it. Um, from there, I do a revision that can bring me to a first draft that I can then submit to a developmental editor. I go with the developmental editor, work through the next draft uh, through that. And then I do a kind of high level prose pass just to make sure there's nothing real sloppy going on here. And then it's to betas. And then from betas, uh, I do another pass that's really a line editing pass or pretty close to, it's a line editing pass. Um, then to the line editor, then my final line editor pass, and then uh, proofread it. Just a few little things to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have it mapped out or anything. How, how long does that take from, like, end of draft zero to publish? So book two, I'm predicting, based on... Uh, what the publishing path has been like for book one and how that's gone. Um, book two, I'm thinking from draft one to publish is uh, nine to 12 months for me. Yeah, so I'd say the whole process is probably eight, 18 months maybe. Is, is, that, is that, or how much of that is just waiting for your professional editors and your beta? Or is, or is more of that your work? Most of that's my work, yeah, because I overlap things a lot. So even while I'm waiting for betas, there's things that I can be working on 
I am in a period right now between what I did in the line editor of about four to six weeks where I'm working on a short story because I don't want to move on to the next things with book two and three. Um, but for the most part, there's been something consistent to work on. And I'll alternate between like at, at one point I'm outlining, doing a narrative outline. So it's like a discovery outline of book three after having finished book two while I was waiting for beta readers on book one. Um, and the beta reader thing, probably six weeks of me not working on the book. It was probably two months of two to 10 weeks, two months to 10 weeks of actually getting beta reader feedback. But there was enough early on that I could come in and start making broad strokes of fixing things. That makes sense. So I didn't wait, have to wait for all the beta reader feed, feedback to come in. There was enough early on that was like, this is obvious. I know exactly how to fix it. Let's start working on that. So if I remember from us chatting a few times, you do a four point plot system, right? instead of like the three points. So how does that work when you're trying to do, cause we use like the three story method all the time. How does that work for you when it comes to the four points? So you could almost think of it as like a three and a half point because um, the middle section acts two and three, are, I kind of see as one act with a really strong low point in the middle. So, um, so act one, we've got, you know, the inciting incident, the beginning hook is all happening. And by the end of that, the status quo has changed. They've entered the new world. You know, they have to, uh, their, their actions have to change. And now they're doing the best they can to deal with what's changed. That's not working. It's not working. It's not working. And then finally you get this all is lost moment of there's no way out. You know, this is the dark night of the soul type of moment. And then they, the protagonists or the heroes have to change, you know, their methods. They have to change as a person. They have to grow. And then they move up from there. And then at the end of Act 3, uh, that's where you can have, you know, sometimes it's a twist. Sometimes that's going to be way later. But at the end of Act 3, and you're going into Act 4, would be where... They're, they're working. It seems like everything's working. They have a big victory and then boom, it, you know, if we're thinking about uh, the Avengers and Thanos and it's like they're winning, they're winning. And then all of a sudden Thanos did catch wind that they have gone back in time and he catches up with them and suddenly he appears and you're like, oh no. And that's act four. And that whole second part of Avengers would have been act four. Um, but that act two and three, you could argue, is one act with just a turning point at the center or somewhere towards the center um, that's caused by, you know, a low point, a, a all is lost moment. You know, nothing that was working can work anymore. Everything has to change kind of deal. Cool. And do you and keep that? The, oh, sorry. I was going to say, so, but that's not like a... 25, 25, 25, 25 breakdown, you know, like in my current book and, uh, or in the first book on here, um, you know, readers will tell me for sure if it actually worked or not, but, uh, the, the first act is like 30 to 40% of this book. It's, it's a lot about the first act. And then the, the final act, 
four is probably 15 to 20 percent, you know, maybe 15 percent of the book um, as far as word count wise goes. So it's not like this even breakdown. It's more about the the uh, pacing and the emotional points of the book. And do you keep that same four point pattern that you like have worked on in book one for the remaining books too? Do you still use the four points? Yeah. Yeah. And I will like short stories. I'm, I'm pretty traditional three act. Um, and I could see easily having different stories that I write or different types of modes that I write where I, I'm like, eh, the traditional three act is going to work a lot better or, or fit. So I see this four act as working for this series. Um, and uh, I think it works particularly well for action, but, um, but it's kind of, I, I see tools like story grid, for example, or three act versus four act versus like seven point. Um, I see them as uh, tools to be used as a means to an end. And so for this series, I'm, I'm liking the four point thing. What about your relationship with professional editors? How have they, how have they helped you or guided you or has it been helpful to, to deal with a dev editor or a line editor? Yeah, working with editors has been fantastic. Um, a developmental editor, um, I worked with Anne Hawley and, um, on this book. And uh, there's, like when I was talking about being in the, in the trees versus seeing the country, um, she was really able to help see the country, but I've found every editor that I work with helps you grow as a writer. So for me, uh, paying for an editor is paying for your education in addition to making the book better. So it's like a, it's an easy investment to make. Um, it's easy, like paying money on an editor almost feels good. It's not that I've like pay money, but it's like, I'm going to get better as a writer when I do this. Um, and the book is going to get better. And so the process with the developmental editor was fantastic. Um, I did put a lot of effort and a lot of time into finding who I felt I was going to be the right fit with. And I did the same thing with the line editor. Um, and so I think that's really important. I've heard a lot of nightmares stories with editors, but I put a lot of work into anyone I work with in, before I choose who they go with. And so far, um, the experiences have been, you know, invaluable. All right. What what haven't we covered about your revision process that you think we ought to, or that that sticks oh. out in your mind as as unique or something something big that you've learned along the way that you could share with our listeners? I don't know if it's unique or not, but it's helped me with the how daunting revision can be. Like, I think of Patrick Rothfuss who. You know, it's going to take eight years to produce a single book, but his prose is just amazing. And you realize that he goes obsessively line after line after line and then edits again and again and again. Um, and uh, that's really daunting to me. And that also means I don't get to tell a lot of stories. And I want to tell more stories. 
so, um, but I also want beautiful prose, uh, beautiful stories. So the analogy that stuck with me that has really helped me with how Herculean that task can be is um, I did pottery, you know, in high school and college, took pottery classes and was into ceramics quite a bit. And if you want to make a bust of a person, you're like, I want to make the head of Abraham Lincoln. Or maybe you don't even know that. I want to make the head of uh, uh, a powerful female superhero. And I don't have a superhero in mind, but I want to do that. So you, I'm going to make a, I'm going to knead the clay and stuff first, and then I'm going to make a rectangle. I'm going to take the rectangle, slam it down in a corner, and now I've got a head facing me. I'm going to start working my way through that. And I'm going to do that every single time I make a bust, pretty much, um, because that's, that's what's going to get me where I need, and heads are always shaped the same. And then I start working it through and working it through, and there's a bubble here in the clay that you can't catch, or your thumb moves a different way, or you got more water here, and the clay moves differently. And you're like, oh, wait, her hair could go this way, but you're messing with her nose too much, and you can't quite get it right. And then you suddenly realize, like, hey, this is an old dude with wispy hair, and I'm kind of digging that. So I'm going to start needling it this way. And then at some point, you're like, you know what? No, what the hell with this nose. And you cut the nose off mold it up and you're like i'm going back to the the woman and you mold this different nose and you score it and you put some water you put it back on there and you just keep going and you're working your way all the way down to where you've got a little scalpel and you're in there with the eyebrows and making little lines for the eyebrows but at any point i can stop it and and pull back i can cut the eyebrow off i can make this woman an old man i can make it an orc you know, at any point I can change it, but the point is I'm working the clay the entire time and, and gradually getting more and more detailed. So for my revisions, I do do a linear thing at times where I'm going through sentence by sentence or scene by scene working through, but I also do things like a character pass where I take Roan, the character, and I have her write a monologue so I know exactly how she speaks. I know the words that she uses and her, uh, you know, her uh the way she cusses and things like that and because of my wonderful spreadsheet i can really quickly find all the scenes where she appears in and i just go and i just skim through for her dialogue tags and refine each little dialogue tag a little bit and move forward and that was drawing the lines in the eyebrow um and then i go to so i do little passes that are very focused and specific in addition to sort of the general passes you you talked about That's doing a, a character pass. You talked about doing a character pass. Do you do one for each character, or do you do sort of a generalized character pass, or what? What do you do for, and what other kinds of passes are you looking for? Yeah, so um, I don't do every character. Um, I do definitely. Th there's two main protagonists that I do, and most secondary characters. So any character that has an emotional arc, um, has an emotional beat, um, and it needs to be distinct. Like if you have an, if you're a character and you have an emotional beat in my story, there need, you need to be distinct as well. Otherwise you're just kind of a tool that I'm throwing in there. So if you're going to be there and you're going to make an emotional beat, I need, you need to be something distinctive about you. And part of that needs to be dialogue. And so, that list of characters, which in this book, the list of secondary characters is maybe 12, 
maybe let's call it. Um, and then two main protagonists. So let's say 16 folks, maybe being conservative. Um, those folks, I do the dialogue passes on. And I feel like dialogues where a whole lot of the characterization happens. So as I'm doing the dialogue, I might notice like, oh, Roan's doing this body language, which she never does. So let me change that real quick. But I'm focused on the dialogue. Um, and that's for primary and secondary characters. I, if there's a tertiary character that's like a comic relief or um, plays like a key role, even though they're not part of the, they're not having a lot of screen time, then I'll do it. Um, the other passes are uh, action scenes, in particular fight scenes. Um, I I go through every fight scene and I strip it down as much as possible. I make sure that everything is POV driven. Um, I simplify it as much as possible, even to painful points, because in my head I see everything happening, and that's not what's going to work for the for the reader. So I do an action pass. Um, I do descriptor passes where, uh, not, de well, I wouldn't call them descriptor passes. I do, I do in, in and outs. So, um, I go through every chapter and I look at the intro to the chapter, like the opening paragraph and the exiting paragraph is the opening paragraph. Interesting is the exiting paragraph enticing. And if not, and I rewrite it and that's one pass. It's just focused on the ins and outs. Um, those that's a good one. Yeah, that's a new one I hadn't heard about uh, that I haven't heard of an author doing before. Yeah, I can't remember who said it originally. It was a pretty well-known author. I think it was on writing excuses that I might have heard it. I can't remember for sure. But what he said is that you, your middle can suck as long as you're in and you're out is great. And <laughs> in regards to the seeds. Because, like, you can slog through the middle, but at the end, and TV shows us over and over, you watch this show, it's got this great intro, and then you got 30 minutes of crap and melodrama. But in the end, they're like, but then this showed up. Bah, bah, bah. And you're like, oh, i got to watch the next episode. And the next episode, again, you're like, why am I waiting through this? And at the end, oh, they got me. Again. <laughs> well, where can we find you and uh, and your book on the net? So uh, donelliot.us um, is where you can find me on the web uh, or on socials. Uh, pretty much anywhere is Don is flying. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. I don't think LinkedIn. I'm not sure. But those were the main ones. Don is flying. Yeah. Okay. All right. And what about your book? When does it come out? October 22nd. Yay. So actually a couple of it? weeks ago, based on when we're, so when we're planning on releasing this episode. A couple of weeks ago. It was very exciting. I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> Where can we get this book? <laughs> get it all the normals. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, Kobo. Uh, it will be at libraries at a certain point. It will be available on hardcover, paperback, and ebook, And we'll do audio sometime next year. Nice. Well, good. That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate your being on Revision Wizards, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you.